Hello, everybody. My name is Trevor Callen. I'm joined with my brother and partner, Tim Callen. We're managing partners at Callen Capital. I want to welcome everybody today to our webinar. We're very excited about this. Uh, we're pleased to host this event with a very special guest. Uh, Brian Borton is joining us from Stepstone, which Tim will introduce shortly. We have so many guests on the line. We have a lot of clients on the line, friends of the firm, but we also have some guests on the line. So for those that are not familiar with Callen Capital, we're an independent wealth management company uh, founded by myself and my two brothers. Uh, Tim is actually on the line here 16 years ago. Uh, we have offices in La Jolla, California, which is just north of uh, San Diego. And that's where actually Brian is re resides as well. And we have an office in Austin, Texas. We've Our, our uh, partners have been in the industry for between 20 and 30 years. So a lot of experience in the industry. Uh, our clients have entrusted somewhere between $1.5 and $1.6 billion under advisement, which is a, a um, obviously a responsibility that we take very seriously. And uh, we're very excited to, to talk about uh, venture capital and private equity today. Ma many of our clients are entrepreneurs. Many are on the line now that are venture-backed and private equity-backed entrepreneurs. And we also have allocations across our model portfolios to venture and private equity. And Callan Capital, we, we strive to provide our clients and the friends of our firm with timely information. And that's why we host the, these events with thought leaders from around the world. And you know, over the last couple of years, we've had so many disruptions, right? We started with COVID and we obviously have a war in Europe. We had the Federal Reserve raising rates, fighting inflation. We you know, obviously had just had the banking crisis, a lot of dislocations that have happened you know, economically over the last several years. And that's why we thought that this, this topic was particularly timely. And we are very excited to introduce Brian, which Tim will do so now. Thank you, Trevor. So today, as Trevor mentioned, we're here to talk about opportunities in private equity and venture capital with our special guest, Brian Borden. So Brian's a partner over at Stepstone, and many folks may not know of Stepstone, but they are the largest allocator of private private markets in the world. They allocate over $600 billion in assets, and of that, they have $134 billion in assets under management, all in private markets. So there's really no better opportunity here directly from the source than Brian Borton, who's a partner over at Stepstone. He's on the investment committee for their venture capital and growth equity team. And within that team alone, they manage over 29 billion in venture capital and growth assets. So Brian, thanks so much for, for coming on our program here and speaking to our clients and members of the community about private equity. I'm gonna go ahead and kick it off with the first uh, question. Before doing so, just a couple of housekeeping items. We are gonna open this up to audience participation and questions down at the bottom of the Zoom. You can click on the Q&A section, enter in your question there. Trevor and I will get to those questions at the end of this call. So Brian, can you give us a little bit more of a background than what I've already just done on StepStone and your overall platform? Sure. Yeah, happy happy to, Tim. Thanks uh, for having me on. So it's a pleasure to partner with you and uh, also great, obviously, you know, based here in, in La Jolla, where you have an office, and I'm a UT Austin alum, so I spent a lot of time in Austin and, as well. Um, but again, thanks for having me here. I'll give a quick background on StepStone and in particular our venture and growth practice. I think that'll really set the table for um, really how we operate and the view or the window that we have into the overall venture and growth uh, ecosystem globally. Um, so we have uh, 11 partners uh, across uh, our firm dedicated to venture and growth, uh, over 75 investment professionals dedicated venture growth, far and away, 
think the largest team focused on, on this category. Um, you know, we are active globally, uh, you know, have a presence uh, and are investing in every major and minor market, you know, not only the US and Europe and Israel, um, but broadly across Asia, India, um, you know, the broader Latin region, and we invest in every stage from the most nascent, uh, you know, early stage companies to the most mature, uh, you know, kind of pre-IPO companies. Um, and we're fortunate to, you know, work with, uh, you know, have a, I think a unique model of not only, you know, do we, in, we invest in funds, um, but we also collaborate very deeply with those funds uh, and do direct and what's called secondary investing uh, in partnership with them, which we'll get into in a, in a little bit. But um, we're invested across about 300 different venture and growth managers. Uh, so from you know the household names that the many on this call will, will know, the Sequoias, Andreessen's, um, Lightspeed, Bessemers of the world, we have very long, very deep and scaled um, kind of capital relationships with those firms. Um, you know, also, you know, fortunate to back, you know, iconic firms like Benchmark or Mayfield or, or others. Um, and, you know, in terms of scale, you know, you mentioned, Tim, you know, close to 30 billion of assets under management. If you include kind of, uh, you know, additional capital we advise on, we're actually, our venture growth team is investing about 8 billion a year. Um, so to quite a lot of uh, visibility. And then the last thing I'll say is we really tie a lot of that together through data, uh, which is important. Um, we have about a 40 person data science and engineering team that is really focused on collecting, standardizing, analyzing the data um, across various, you know, all private markets. And then we use that to help drive insights and investment decision-making. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a sense um, you know, of, uh, of our platform and uh, looking forward to diving in here. So Brian, to get started, can you give us a, a comparison of the difference between venture capital, private equity, kind of early stage, you know, from angel all the way up to late stage buyout and crossover rounds for the group before we get started into the opportunities and pitfalls in the market? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, look, at a high level, I mean, these are all just different ways to invest in companies, right? And then and the difference is really around, you know, company maturity, risk profile, and return expectations. And there's trade-offs in each of those, right? Things like, you know, the level of liquidity you have, the, the duration or how long, you know, you, you have to hold your investment before you can get money back. Uh, the level of fees and level of volatility that you should expect as an investor. It's all different across those different categories. Um, at a high level, right, venture capital is, is really um, defines the asset class around, you know, from kind of a company's formation all the way up to when it's targeting to go public, um, right? And, and, and it's focused on companies that are growing very quickly, right? They're targeting a big outcome. They're taking risk to do that. They're burning cash, right? So spending more money than they're taking in. So they're dependent on raising successive rounds of capital. And this whole ecosystem of venture capital exists to support those companies and embrace that, um, that risk. And so that's venture capital. Within that, as you said, Trevor, right, there's you know, seed, angel, very early stage, um, obviously highest risk, longest duration, um, you know, most volatility. Um, but then, you know, as companies grow and mature, 
um, risk profile changes, duration changes, um, and these are you know real real businesses. Um, and then you know private equity, you know, or kind of buyouts are um, much more mature, established businesses um, across really any sector. Right? These are just privately held businesses that are not publicly held, uh, and they are investable, and they can be owned by families. They can be owned by other private equity firms, um, and you know these companies, and the, the you know they're typically profitable. Um, you know when they're acquired, the the private equity investor will put leverage on the business. Uh, to help drive uh, return. And the way that they make money is by professionalizing and improving the business, cutting costs, um, and you know, doing other sort of strategic initiatives so that when they sell it three, five, seven years later, it's worth more. Um, so that's kind of private equity buyouts. There's a, a you know asset class you know called growth equity that kind of shares aspects of both right high growth businesses, but without leverage. Um, that we're quite active in. And then lastly, public equities, which everyone is, is familiar with, you know, much more, even more established and mature businesses, uh, typically much larger. Um, you know, I think the key takeaway though is that you know, what's happened over the last 20 years um, is that there's been a shift in, um, you know, companies are staying private for a lot longer. Um, and particularly this is relevant for the venture ecosystem. And so the value capture for investors um, is happening in private markets, not public markets, right? So in the 90s and you know, even early 2000s, companies were going public when they were doing 40, 50 million of revenue, sometimes even less. Today, companies are waiting until they're doing hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars of revenue. And so that value capture uh, is again happening in private markets um, much more than in, in public markets today. And, you know, the number of public companies, as you all know, is actually, you know, been persistently declining, right? And that's even accelerating with um, companies being taken private by, you know, buyout firms, et cetera. So hopefully that, that kind of shares a little bit of the, the framework here. Well, there's a number of ways to invest in the space. Can you talk about some of those ways, uh, primaries, secondaries, sure. investments, those types of issues? Sure. So, um, I mean, this will kind of apply broadly across private equity, but I'll, I'll, since I focus on venture growth, we'll certainly kind of double click on that. But the way to think about um, the, the tools in your toolkit, if you will, investing in 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 uh, you know in, in kind of private you know, venture and, and growth uh, is you can invest in funds or you can invest in companies. Um, and in each of those, you can invest in what's called a, on a primary basis or a secondary basis. So let's start off with, with funds. So investing in a fund would be if you literally, you know, uh, submit subdocs to invest with Sequoia or Andreessen or Lightspeed. Um, and so it's a blind pool, right? You're signing up for a commitment. Uh, and that capital is called over, you know, the next, you know, three to 10 years. Um, and invested, um, you have no visibility into where that money is going to go, what companies is going to be invested in, and you're paying them fees uh, and profit sharing uh, to, to do that. Um, but you can also invest in funds on, on what's called a secondary basis, where if someone else has made the primary investment in the fund, and they're in year four, five, eight, and they need liquidity, there's no mechanism 
like we all are used to in public markets to just go and, and click a button and, and sell your position and, and get liquidity. That doesn't exist in, in private markets. And so uh, you can acquire and buy funds from other fund investors on the secondary market. And the beauty of that is an area we're extremely active in, particularly in times of just, you know, distress and dislocation uh, and high anxiety like we're in right now. Um, where we can acquire these portfolios where you have visibility into the companies, right? And you're accessing them at deep discounts because there's um, inefficiency um, there. And so, you know, we can get into more of this later, but, you know, we're buying portfolios in this environment at 40, 50, even 70% discounts, um, you know, because of, of some of those inefficiencies. So that's funds on the company side, Right, a primary investment into a venture company is when you're putting cash onto the balance sheet of the company. So entrepreneur, as I said, they are burning cash, they're hitting milestones, they need more money to fuel their business and um, you know, and continue to grow. And so they raise a primary round and we ha you have the opportunity to, to give that company money, that company goes on their balance sheet and is used to operate. You can also invest in co companies on a secondary basis, um, where similar to what I described on funds, you can acquire an interest from another investor in that company that came in earlier. Um, and so the beauty of that is that you know oftentimes you can acquire that interest at a discount because there's no other kind of ready market. Um, it's off, often quite opaque where there's less information available. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's quite, it's a huge part of the venture asset class because in, in venture-backed companies, there's often dozens and dozens of different investors who all invested at different times at different cost bases and have different needs, right? And so, um, you know, there's, we can, again, unpack that a little bit more, but that's at a, at a high level from the ways that you can invest in, in venture and growth. So, Brian, I'd love to, to have you, you know, give us a, a, an example or two, but before I go there... Um, you had mentioned discounts. When you say discount of you know 40, 70%, discount to what? Yeah. Yeah, good, good question. Sorry, I should have clarified that. So um in public markets, right? It, it, we all have a price on the screen that you see and can track. Uh in private markets, you're only getting that data point on a quarterly basis. Uh, and there's a lot of judgment that goes into the, the pricing. It's what's called the net asset value, right? So if you um, you know, if you're invested in a fund, uh, the manager of that fund goes through a valuation exercise every quarter. Uh, that all rolls up to um, a, what's calculated as the net asset value of the position in that fund. Um, and that's, you know, some managers of funds are aggressive with their valuations. Some are very conservative with their valuations. Um, but on the board, across the board, it's it's, you know, representative of, of fair value. Um, and so uh, the you know so that's the mark that like what I'm saying, you know 40, 50, 70 percent discounts, it's to that mark. Uh, and so um, there's a lot that goes into it, but effectively that's like the price on the screen that, that we get within private markets um, and that we're able to acquire at, at discounts too. Great. Do, do you have any examples of that? Brian? Yeah. Yeah, so um, look, it's yeah. I think at a over the long term, 
um, discounts in venture capital, right? This is buying funds and portfolios uh, have averaged you know, over the last decade, probably around 20 to maybe 25% uh, discounts to that net asset value. Um, which is, I think, understandable because there's you know the liquidity need and efficiency, not a lot of information, few kind of few buyers out there, um, and that compares to discounts in buyout funds, right? So if you're you know familiar names like say a Blackstone or KKR or Carlyle buyout fund, you know the the discounts there are typically much thinner, maybe five to Maybe fifteen percent over the long over the long run, um, you know, and and so so that's um, kind of how how the market is set up. The different discounts in this environment where there's particular distress and dislocation, discounts widen. Some of that is driven by um, there's a view that the net asset values are inflated and not necessarily reflective of of fair value, and so you need an even deeper discount to uh, to require them, and I think that's fair in 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 some cases, and that's our job to to get to the truth. Um, you know, but in terms of specific case studies, like I'll just walk through one right you know right now that we closed last year, and and I think what what I want you to kind of take away, forgive me if I go too much into the weeds, but I love talking about this stuff. Is like pay attention to the level of inefficiency in the market. Um, and it's very different. There's a lot of different characteristics than investors that are used to, you know, public public markets. And there's a lot of a lot of friction, a lot of information asymmetries, and things like that. Um, so uh, there's an early stage venture manager that we're fortunate to have backed. Um, they are, you know, probably a top ten, top fifteen firm globally, incredible returns, multiple funds, you know, over nine, 10X multiples of capital. Um, we spent eight years to kind of earn the right to invest in their funds. Uh, and, and they're really credible manager, close partners. Stepstone is, is the largest investor in those funds today. Um, and they've never had one of their investors in their funds or LPs, if you will, uh, never had anyone try to get liquidity. But in this environment, right, there was a family office um, that was looking for liquidity, and they had invested in, in three different funds managed by this, uh, this firm, um, and they attempted to hire a broker to help with that process. Um, and, you know, they were trying to sell a broader part of their portfolio. Uh, and so we, you know, identified these funds and part of that brokered process we were able to call the manager of the fund and say, hey, did you know that your investor is trying to get liquidity? Um, first off, you know, we wanted you to know. Secondly, you know, we would love to buy it. Is there anything you can you, you can do to help us? So the manager of the fund actually called the seller, you know, required them to remove uh, the funds from the brokered process and told them that they could only sell to Stepstone. Right. And, and so immediately going from a somewhat competitive process to a completely proprietary process where we were the only potential source of liquidity for the seller. Um, and then because we have deep relationship with the manager, we're able to work very closely with them to get all the visibility we were, you know, we needed into the portfolio to underwrite it, to price it, um, which is another thing. 
which in venture in particular, there's almost no information, right? So even this family office that was selling, they didn't even really have good visibility into what they owned, right? They may have the names of the companies, but they didn't know, are, you know, what's the revenue of those companies? What carrying value are they at? What's the growth rate? What's the ownership? Like anything that you would really need to properly value and understand, they didn't have. But we as the buyer, because of our relationship, we're able to do that. And so we're able to get very granular information on the underlying portfolio, price it, work through a proprietary process to acquire that portfolio. We ended up only buying two of the three funds because we, we thought that the third fund was overvalued, uh, which ended up being accurate. Uh, and so we bought two funds um, from them at uh, kind of roughly a 30% discount at, at the time. Um, and so uh, very excited about that, uh, that portfolio. And last thing I'll say is, there's a timing arbitrage component too of secondary investing where valuations are, are sometimes two, three quarters stale versus when you're buying it. Uh, and so there, a lot can happen in that time period. And so we knew that some of the key assets in those portfolios had raised up rounds and continued to grow really nicely. And so we were effectively arbitraging time. So it's kind of like if you had the opportunity to buy a mutual fund, um, on the public markets based on a price from six or nine months ago, right? There's a lot of data valuations and then fair value has changed and you have the ability to kind of look back in time uh, and acquire that at a, at a discount. So um, hopefully that brings it to life a little bit. Hopefully we're not too too much in the weeds, but um, again, highly inefficient, uh, you know, a much more creative, I'd say risk managed way of accessing the venture asset class. Great. And just housekeeping, again, if there's audience questions, please type them in the Q&A section at the bottom of the Zoom. And uh, more on that, Brian, just uh, when you do buy these at a discount, tell us about how you mark it up and, and how that drives returns, particularly in the beginning uh, stages of a fund. Yeah, sure. So um, look, the, the discount is um, like you know, arguably fair, fair value is that, that net asset value. And the discount is because of the inefficiency of of the market and so um the the beauty about doing secondary investing is right if you're acquiring a 50 million dollar you know a position that has a net asset value of 50 million and you're acquiring that for 25 million day one you recognize all of that value and so you're up you know 50 percent discount you're up 2x day one um and and so now it takes a little while to get liquidity from there, um, right? But what it does is it, it um, you know, it certainly pulls forward a lot of the return, um, and it also it, it helps address what's called the J curve in private markets, where you know if you if you invest in a say if you do go and invest in Andreessen's fund, which is you know which they're great, they're good trusted partners of ours. Um, you, you know, the first few years, you're actually showing negative returns, right? Because they immediately start, you know, charging management fees. And then it takes them three to five years to actually put that fund to work. And then those companies grow and then they're sold and you get your return. But those first few years of a private fund typically actually show negative returns. Um, and so using secondaries, you can actually flip that on its head and you can show positive returns, real returns day one. Um, and so for some of our products that specialize in secondary investing, um, right, they often have no J curve 
uh, also because you're acquiring portfolios that are much more mature, you get your money back faster, right? So in a typical venture fund, if you were to back it on a primary basis, you would wait 10, 15, sometimes even 20 years to get all your money back, which isn't suitable often for individual investors. But through the secondary market, um, we're buying mature established portfolios. And so we've like fully paid back our institutional second VC secondary funds in about four years on average, um, which is almost unheard of in the venture asset class. So it's a, I think again, a risk, more risk mitigated way uh, of, of kind of getting exposure, um, but without some of the complexities and the nuances and the challenges that the venture asset class presents to many investors, particularly individual high net worth investors. Right. Obviously, there's good and bad players in the industry. Can you comment on that and how investors can kind of tell the differences between the two? Yeah. Yeah. No, look, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a, it's exciting to invest in venture capital. Uh, you know, it feels like, uh, you know, the potential of a lottery ticket, you know, you see the headlines of, of the great outcomes. Um, but it's really important to, I think, appreciate the risk profile as well as the return dispersion um, in the venture asset class. Um, you know, if you, you know, I'd say, I think of anything you can possibly do in private markets, venture capital has the broadest return dispersion between the, the best performers and the worst performers. Um, if you actually look at the median performing venture capital fund, it's actually not very good. Um, you're much better off, you know, backing like Blackstone's buyout fund, taking much less risk, getting your money back much faster uh, and paying lower fees. Um, you know, the median venture capital returns, you know, I think over the last probably 15 years has been, you know, maybe 12, 13 uh, percent kind of net IRRs, um, which is fine and reasonable, but not certainly not worth the fees and the volatility and, and the risk. Um, and so there is certainly concentration of returns in a handful of managers and a handful of companies. Uh, and so it's really important to make sure that you're investing with someone who has a, a, some sort of an edge, a network, or an ability to access um, the right companies, the right funds. Um, you have the right set of relationships to do this well, um, because this is definitely not something in a portfolio that when we advise clients that... It's just like, yeah, do anything in venture capital and you'll get this estimated return. It's that's not that's not the case at, at all. And so um, bad players in this industry often are just logo chasers, um, right? They're trying to go get you know, the next Uber and then market off. You know, obviously, Uber is public now, but if, you know, when Uber was was private, you know, that's sort of a company that's that's got cachet, that's got recognizability. Um, and they just chase logos. They don't really care about price. Often they don't have information, right? And back to that example I gave of the secondary, uh, there's not a ton of information about these privately held businesses or the funds that invest in them. Uh, and so um, there's a lot of bad actors out there that are, are, are investing in these companies with shockingly limited information. Um, and that works in an up into the right environment. But uh, in, in an environment like now, it's very apparent, you know, who is operating that way. So trust is really important. Network is really important because of the risk, because of the return dispersion, because of lack of information. Um, and so it's something that we think about a lot here and try to compensate for. 
and, and the title of, of the program here is now a good time. So to invest in this asset class. So you can kind of take us back to the previous uh, times, maybe even the last 25 years, late 90s. What was it like then versus now? Um, and even two years ago to now, and is now really a good time to get into this asset class? Yeah, yeah, no, good good question. Um, we get this a, a lot from, from clients. So I'll uh, try to condense 25 years uh, into a minute or two here. Uh, well, I mean, look, the in the in the late '90s and early, you know, very early 2000s, right? The the kind of advent of the internet and the promise of the internet um, really drove, you know, the first that was the that was the dot com boom, and there was a lot of capital that came into the space. A lot of companies got funded. A lot of silliness happened, and and there was, um, you know, even though the promise was real, right? The capital allocation wasn't particularly wise, uh, and I think the the, the the difference, very big difference from today is really around market size for the companies, um, right? And, and you think about, you know, the, the number of internet users, right? How much software has permeated our, our lives. Um, it is a dramatically larger market opportunity today than it was in the, in, in the, the 90s and early 2000s, where all these companies got funded but there wasn't really that established customer base to actually use and buy the software or, or even on the web at the time to order groceries, right? There was, it was so much more nascent. And so the capital went in before the market was really ready. Um, and so then translated to really, you know, six, seven years of weak returns. And, you know, we, we kind of call it or dub it the nuclear winter adventure from kind of 2000 to 2006 or seven, where returns were, were really lagging. Um, but then really, you know, starting, you know, it, it kind of recovered and, and you know, right around the GFC um, or global financial crisis. And, and that was through kind of a confluence of technological advancements um, that really uh, kind of changed the game for you know, early stage companies and, and the ability of companies to get, you know, get founded much more cost effectively, much more easily and scale much more efficiently. Um, and, you know, so this, you know, the launch of the iPhone and the app store and, and um, you know, the, the really the advent of, of cloud computing and, um, you know, all set the table for this massive wave and acceleration of, of technology, right? And this is, relatively obvious uh, to everyone, but, and, and, and that's great and exciting. And so capital came back into the market, the market was ready and it's continued to grow. Um, and then it really kind of went into hyper mode um, in, you know, through the pandemic, right? And, and some of that manifested itself more specifically into unrealistic and irrational valuations, definitely driven by low slash zero interest rates, um, a lot of risk seeking, history of about 15 years of, of, you know, or at least over a decade of really strong returns, um, brought in a lot of new entrants, a lot of capital, um, and like I said, irrational valuations. Um, within the pandemic in particular, as folks know, um, there was a step change in adoption of many technologies and an acceleration of certain trends like e-commerce penetrations and things like that. And there was, you know, I think a misinterpretation that some of that acceleration was um, was permanent. Uh, and so 
then you had an, an unwinding, right? And and you know, kind of post-pandemic pullback, coupled with spike in interest rates, um, coupled with overall kind of macro softness and the geopolitical tensions, shifted to a risk-off environment, uh, and so valuations have have cratered. Um, now I lay that out, that framework out, because as you you know, you shouldn't be investing in venture unless you have a long-term orientation, right? Um, but the fundamental drivers for why investing in private venture and growth companies are absolutely just as true today as they were two years ago and five years ago. If anything, it's more important um, today. We're using more software, right? Like, don't even get me started on like how AI is is really changing the game and, and rebuilding kind of the foundational architecture of technology and software and how we interact with software and technology. Um, and so that macro thesis, those secular trends are very present, very persistent and very real today. Um, but we're in an environment where valuations have uh, come down much more rationally uh, a lot of the excess has been pulled from the system. And so the behavior we're seeing from companies, how efficient they're being, uh, how quickly they're getting to profitability. Um, we think this is a really special moment in time where the, the, the vision, the macro opportunity or the secular opportunity for private venture growth assets is persistent and real, uh, but valuations have come back down um, much more rational uh, levels. And so from, from that perspective, um, we think it's uh, a very attractive time to be investing today. Obviously, that's a self-serving statement, but um, yeah, I think particularly if you have the right platform and access and the tools in your toolkit to navigate some of the complexity, um, right? This is you know we're not you know saying that there's not going to continue to be volatility like what we saw with SVB um, or or others, um, but if you have a long-term time horizon and the right tools in your toolkit, this is a I think really critical part of a portfolio uh, to be building and establishing. Right, you, you just mentioned Silicon Valley Bank and and their banker, bankruptcy obviously just happened. How's that affected the space and you know portfolio companies and just the overall space uh, space in general? Yeah, sure. So um, look at SVB. You know, it has been a, a pretty important partner. Uh, to the overall venture and growth ecosystem. Um, and you know, really was built around supporting both the companies and the, the, the investors uh, in, that, in that ecosystem. Uh, and so it really built a business that addressed the needs and, and had the specialization to understand the complexities of, of the venture ecosystem. Um, so certainly, like they're, they're, you know, the, the bankruptcy uh, and you know associated you know kind of volatility is is a loss for the ecosystem and um, you know that said uh, yeah I think it it translated to really an, an acute short term um, pain uh, but you know in long run there's other providers of venture debt, right? And I think venture debt is, which was something that SVB was, I think the most active player in, is really only, has only ever been 10 or 20% of the size of the venture equity market. Um, and there's many other players, right? BDCs, um, direct lenders that 
can provide that. It's just going to be more expensive and a little bit more high friction process and less friendly terms than it was in the past. Um, and so really the the impact in the kind of the current term, the you know, medium and long term is, you know, is is more around, you know, it did shift, you know, kind of a risk off mode for some investors. Um, but it really, I think, accelerated the acceptance of the new valuation reality that we're in. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think, again, in, in some kind of warped way, healthy uh, in the long run for, for the asset class uh, to have that embrace of the new valuation reality and, and some, some more um, risk conscious behavior. Um, but the ecosystem is very flexible, will adapt, has already adapted. Um, and is not something that we kind of view as, as kind of a core uh, a, a core risk um, right now. I know we have a, a number of private equity and venture-backed entrepreneurs as clients, and that Monday was pretty scary, right? I mean, they were yeah. waking up not knowing they're going to make payroll at some point. Yeah, so. I know. Big, I think a big collective sigh of relief at around, uh, what, 3 p.m. Uh, that Sunday Pacific time, uh, you know, when there was the the, the government stepped in. But um, yeah, very, very interesting time, uh, kind of the, the lost weekend for many in the ecosystem. <laughs> and maybe you can tell us a little bit about your fund, uh, Seaspring. I know we've, we've invested some client funds in it. And uh, what do you see the outlook for that and what you're, what you're up to in terms of the type of investments you're making? Yeah, sure. So so our spring product is really, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a new strategy at all. It's a new product, right? And so we've adapted um, are uh, what we've already been doing for institutions, right? The, the vast majority, almost entirety of Stepstone's client base and investor base are sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, insurance companies, you know, elite endowments and foundations. And they hire us and, and let us manage their capital um, to do investing on their behalf, right? And, and we use all the different tools in our toolkit available, like I described. Um, you know, and and we've packaged that up, uh, you know, in the spring portfolio uh, in a form factor that makes that accessible to high net worth and, and kind of affluent uh, investors. Um, and and so, uh, you know, I think a lot of novelty, and we believe really the only product in the world that really has its this form factor, where um, you know, considering the alternative of investing directly in a VC fund where you're waiting 10, 15, 20 years for your money back and you have to file K-1s and, uh, you know, pay very high fees and you don't have liquidity, right? We've solved all those things in the spring product. And so it's, you know, it's, you know, all up, you know, capital is paid upfront. You're investing into an existing known portfolio. And I can talk about some of the, the companies in the portfolio already. Um, you know, there's, it's 1099 tax reporting. It's very low investment minimums, you know, below 100,000, you know, initial initial check, um, and uh, you can get, you know, most importantly, you can get quarterly liquidity at the overall portfolio level. You know, up to two and a half percent of the entire fund can be redeemed on a quarterly basis of so 10 percent a year, um, and if no one else is redeeming, then you can redeem, you know, the entirety of, of your position, right? And so it's a, it's it's really um, a novel product. And the way that we do that, right, when you, I was talking about venture is, is the most illiquid, you know, longest duration asset class. So how do you, how do we do that? Um, and really the secret is secondaries, 
right? And so we're using the secondary market to acquire established, mature portfolios at deep discounts to immediately get, right? We launched the fund, launched the spring fund November 1st. We already have, I think, over 600 underlying portfolio companies. So it's broadly diversified. Uh, performance is up about 20% um, just in those, you know, in the first uh, you know, four or five months of, of reported performance. Um, and we continue to sit on a lot of cash as we've continued to dollar cost average into this environment. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the product is something that we raise money for constantly. It's an evergreen product. So you can use it for a year, you can use it for 10 years and just compound and reinvest you know, proceeds. Um, and is really designed for individual investors to participate in the same deal flow. It's not overage. It's the same deal flow we're doing for institutional clients out of our core kind of flagship institutional funds. Um, and so, you know, again, most of it's focused on portfolio secondaries. We do some direct single company investing um, out of it as well, um, where we're really, uh, our model of direct investing is to, you um, across all the managers that we back. We know who are the best partners at those firms. We track every single one of their companies. Um, and then we go and position ourselves to lead and price uh, rounds in those companies. And so we build a portfolio of really like a greatest hits of the venture growth asset class where um, you know we're getting a basket of companies led by the best partners at the best firms. Um, and doing that directly into those companies without a second layer of fees. So it's a very efficient way uh, to get diversified exposure. So, um, you, know, you know, I would say maybe the last thing uh, I'll mention, you know, just a couple, just give you a profile of some of the largest companies in the portfolio, because uh, again, this is relatively unique in venture where you have visibility into what you're actually investing in. Um, you know, the largest company in the portfolio is, is a company called Hugging Face, um, which is, uh, you know, silly kind of classic Silicon Valley name, but it's actually one of the most important AI businesses uh, in the world. Um, they actually just announced yesterday um, that they released a direct competitor to OpenAI and ChatGPT. Um, and, you know, they are, you know, Hugging Face is the industry standard for machine learning and artificial intelligence researchers. Um, it's where they host their models and that's where they collaborate on open source, um, uh, you know, open source models and data sets. Um, and is really like an infrastructure layer uh, that all AI companies are leveraging and using as a tool. Um, and so it's a very, very special company backed by many of the lead VCs. We're able to access it at you know, a 60% discount to wh what the company was valued at a year ago. Um, and we did that because there was a distressed seller of a portfolio that didn't really understand or appreciate what they owned. And we were able to, you know, acquire that at a very deep discount. And so that that company is very, very special. It is the largest you know, kind of, you know, exposure in the fund today. Um, but very, you know, very diversified. There's a few other companies in there doing hundreds of millions of revenue, um, poised to go public whenever the window reopens, um, and a long tail of some exciting uh, things. So it's a great proxy of, of kind of. Of, of playing the venture and growth market, but in a diversified way that still provides, um, you know, regular liquidity uh, and doing it with a, you know, a firm uh, like Stepstone, where we hopefully is clear that, that we're fortunate to have, you know, a privileged position in, in this ecosystem. That's great. Before we get to questions and answers, just a reminder, 
uh, please tee up your questions in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screen. I'm Brian Curious, we're sitting here in uh, San Diego or La Jolla, California. We also have our office in Austin, Texas. You mentioned you went to UT, two very important venture markets. Do you have any, I, I guess, what's going on in these markets? Do you have any uh, transparency in terms of the, those two markets, in terms of how they're different and yeah. the venture Yeah, it's interesting. Trends. Yeah, so, um, I mean, look, San Diego, uh, you know, I would say, you know, certainly had had its day in terms of venture. A number of VC firms were, were out here. Um, you know, didn't really pan out. You know, so many of those firms have, have gone away. Uh, you know, the, the ones that remain is you know, because there has been a burgeoning and, and attractive uh, kind of biotech uh, industry here. And so a lot of the venture activity in San Diego in particular revolves around uh, biotech and, and related healthcare uh, companies. Um, and so there aren't too many an incredible VC firm that have set up kind of permanent shop in, in San Diego outside of, of the ones focused on, on biotech. Um, now, if you were to, to, to pull back a little bit and look at Southern California, inclusive of LA, uh, that's very different. The LA ecosystem is, is massive and growing and important and not just a consumer media gaming opportunity, but um, there are a number of very uh, credible companies that have been started and, and talent that has moved to the region from the Bay Area um, due to a variety of reasons. But um, that has, you know, LA and, and broader, you know, as part of that, Southern California has become a lot more important for the ecosystem, um, which is exciting. Um, Austin, similarly, right, there's been a, a mass exodus from, uh, from California to, to Texas uh, and Florida. Um, and, you know, and, and that has, uh, I think, accelerated um, Austin as a, a kind of center of entrepreneurial activity, you know, very business friendly climate. Um, and, you know, we're excited, you know, we've been actively investing in have backed uh, VC firms based there that focus on the Texas region, have done investments in company, you know, a number of in investments based in, uh, in the Austin and, and broader Texas region. Um, and so it's exciting. I think now, uh, you know, I think all it does is it, it opens up um, more opportunities for entrepreneurs uh, and, and you know, startups that can be founded anywhere and access talent anywhere globally. Um, and, you know, that concentration of talent and innovation that, you know, that stranglehold that Silicon Valley had uh, is not nearly the stranglehold that it once was, uh, which is exciting. Now, that doesn't mean that as an investor, um, you know, we never, we don't really advise clients to make kind of regional spe specialized bets on like cities, like, you, you know, to back like an Austin, Texas focused VC fund, because um, it's much more important to have that wide top of funnel and make sure that that company you see in Austin is the best one in the country or the best one in the world. And so having that lens is important in building uh, a venture portfolio, but very exciting development in the ecosystem. Probably more than you bargained for with my answer, but uh, hopefully it helps. Good, we'll kick off a couple of audience questions. Again, feel free to type in your questions in the Q&A section. First question is uh, Stepstone's relationship with mid-market businesses during the buyout transitions into the PE fund. Do you generally keep the current board and management or provide more of a hands-on support or how, how actively do you get involved in the business? Yeah, so uh, if I understood the question correctly, it's more around kind of mid-market, more traditional private equity and buy-on investing. And so 
um, I'll, I'll maybe touch on specifically the stepstone, um, right? Our model uh, is to, right, we invest in funds and then we do deals alongside those fund managers um, for buyouts um, as a co-investor. And that's more of a passive uh, a passive role where we get the opportunity to kind of ride shotgun with the lead investor um, and, and get into that deal for free, right? No underlying fees or profit sharing or carried interest. Um, and, and, and so that's what we do there. So in terms of stepstone specific role, we are not, uh, the ones at the board level that are, um, swapping out management or driving value creation plans or, you know, doing what, you know, Vista has, has, has done, right. Where you buy a company in the Bay area and, you know, day, day one, you move everyone to Atlanta or Austin to, to reduce costs, right. That's not our. That's not something that we do. We may be a co-investor alongside Vista or Tomo Bravo or Silver Lake or groups like that. Um, so hopefully that kind of distinguishes what our role is for buyouts. Um, within the venture and growth space, right? We we do selectively take board seats. Um, you know, but again, we're we're relying on our fund managers to really be the ones, you know, creating a lot of value and working even more closely with managers uh, of those underlying businesses. Um, so hopefully that um, that that helps. It, is it pretty pretty common though um, in the industry to have those fund managers go in there and restructure management, it, the board? It really depends. It depends a lot, right? So for anyone on the on the line who is a business owner or contemplating uh, bringing on a private equity investor, right? It's really important to do your homework on uh, on those those firms, they all have very different strategies, right? Some of them are known to and, and are core to their thesis of switching out management. Um, and, um, you know, and, and others are much more uh, kind of just out of water and more hands off. Uh, and, you know, it really depends on the specific strategy, right? There are value oriented, more distress oriented private equity firms, right? And the whole playbook is to buy cheap, right? Replace management, uh, cut costs, reposition the business, uh, and then sell it down the road. And then there's others more growth oriented firms that are looking to the existing management as the best leaders for the business. Uh, and even if, you know, they, they have control, uh, would very rarely ever swap out management and, and would still the firm would be you know generally run by existing management. So it really depends on the specific strategy um, and situation. What other what other types of advice would you have for some of those business owners looking to bring in private equity investors and how best to because it's not all about valuation, how much somebody's going to pay. I mean, of course that's one data point, but what, what are some of the other ones you would look at? Yeah. So I mean, I think it, it depends if, if you're raising venture capital, right? And you'll you know bring it on you know one or or many different investors uh, or growth equity where you you may sell you know only 30, 40 percent of your business and it's a liquidity event for you, um, but you should continue to retain control your, yourself or a full a full buyout where you're selling the entirety of your business. Um, and so look, if if it's a full if it's a full buyout, right, I think the the right thing to do is to to seek kind of maximum price, right? Except for you know considerations around you know legacy and you know retention of of the team that's helped you kind of build the business up until that point. Um, but 
within venture and growth equity, very, very important to do your homework on the, the manager um, because the whole idea is that, you know, that they're going to help make the business even more valuable for you so that the second bite at the apple is much more meaningful. And so if you over-optimize around price uh, and you choose the wrong partner, then you end up making less money in, in the long run. Um, and there are definitely investors uh, in all those different strategies that have different approaches to kind of being founder friendly or, or not. Um, and so uh, price is a consideration. You know, also really important to dig into the kind of the resources available to you and your company um, from their platform. Uh, right. So there are small boutique firms that don't have a lot of resources. And then there's much larger firms that have dozens or even hundreds of people that are there to help you with recruiting and help you with pricing strategies and are, are really, you know, a full consulting organization that's available to be leveraged, um, which can be very, very valuable for you. Um, and so yeah, I think understanding those resources available uh, you know, it's certainly an area to, to, to dig into also like understanding, um, how important you are to that, right. And how many companies they manage, right. And how many, you know, if it's a private equity firm, a private equity fund, do they have, are you going to be one of 10 companies in the fund? Or are you going to be one of a hundred, right. And if it's one of 10, then you're going to be a lot more important to them than if you're one of a hundred. Um, and so, all those things will help you better predict the behavior and the relationship um, that you would have with your kind of institutional uh, capital partner. Good. I think we just have time for one more one more question. So, private equity in terms of an asset class uh, sounds uh, very volatile and can be very volatile and risky. Can you talk about how you mitigate that risk at your fund? Yeah. So. Yeah, I think, yeah, venture and growth uh, certainly has some inherent risk to it, right? Because these businesses, most of the time are burning cash, right? And so uh, they they need more capital to continue to sustain themselves. Um, uh, you know, they certainly can reduce, you know, kind of tweak their spending to, to help kind of extend their runway and, and things like that. And that's what we're seeing a lot of, of now. Um, no, but I, I think the way that we we manage risk here for the spring portfolio in particular is, is multifaceted. And we are certainly cognizant that the vast majority of the investors in this product are individuals, right? Which have kind of by definition, like different risk profiles um, than an institutional kind of pool of, of, of capital from like an insurance company or university endowment. Uh, as we take kind of risk management very, very seriously, and it's it's multifaceted, right? It's you know one is is diversification, and and not just number of companies, but we think a lot about you know, sectors, um, business model diversification, um, size diversification, things like like that. Um, and so inherently, right, having hundreds of underlying companies is a, a critical way to kind of manage manage risk versus being much more concentrated. Um, the other thing is that we have, again, many tools in the toolkit. Um, we don't just have one way to invest. We have many ways to invest. And I think in particular, the secondary market uh, is one where we have extreme competency in 
Uh, it also thrives in times of market dislocation. And so it allows us to evolve the strategy in a variety of kind of macro market conditions um, and frankly benefit from dislocation and fear and anxiety um, where we get better pricing, deeper discounts um, and, and our, you know, that sort of thing. The other thing I would note is that for spring, like we talked a lot today about like nascent, like true startups, like bleeding edge. Spring does not invest in companies like that, right? Spring enters and buys portfolios and makes direct investments in companies um, that are doing kind of minimum 10 million of revenue, right? When we're doing single investment, you know, single company investments, they're doing, you know, 10 to 50, 10 to sometimes hundreds of millions of, of revenue. Um, and so are much more mature, established, have credible teams, dogs are eating the dog food. Um, and, and so that's really important way that we manage risk as, as well. Um, so those are, you know, there's, you know, I can certainly go on for another hour or two around specific like um, you know, mechanics of the fund and how we think about kind of cash reserves and things like that. But um, hopefully that sheds a little bit of light on, on uh, how we think about risk. It absolutely does. And we're at the top of the hour now. So I want to give a special thanks to Brian and Stepstone for participating on the call and sharing your insights. Very interesting to us here at Callan Capital and the folks on the call. Again, thank you all for participating and jumping on the call to learn more about this asset class. We're obviously in, in, in certain times of a lot of uh, volatility and uncertainty in the markets. And we hope you'll consider Callan Capital as a resource to you, your friends, and your family. And, and just bounce ideas off, off us. We're available whenever you need us. My email is Tim at Callan Capital, C-A-L-L-A-N Capital, and Trevor at CallanCapital.com. Thanks again for your time and have a great rest of your week. Take care. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Brian. You got it, Trevor. Thanks.